and the Scales of Justice by John Mortimer, with Timothy West as Horace Rumpole and Prunella Scales as his wife, Hilda. My next guest is Commander Bob Durden. Commander, as an experienced police officer, do you think these scales of justice are weighted too much in favour of the defence? They certainly are, Jeremy. Oh, switch off the telly, Hilda. That highly decorated copper's talking rubbish. Nonsense, no. Everything's done to protect the villain in the dock. And he's the one who... If you won't turn him off, I will. You've got to admit he's right, Rumpo. Things have gone too far in favour of the defence. Why don't you and the commander, of course, try defending some unfortunate innocent before the mad judge Bullingham down the old bailey? Then you'd find out how much things are slanted in favour of the defence. Well, I'm going to turn the commander on oh, again. Oh, please don't. Rumpel, whether you like it or not, he seems a sensible sort of chap. Quite attractive in that uniform. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'd better get myself a flat cap and a pair of handcuffs. Have you got any particular barrister in mind? Well, Jeremy, I'm not naming names. But there are some regular defenders who work down at the Old Bailey, and they'll know who I mean. You're talking absolute Absolute rubbish, Commander Durden, absolute rubbish. It's no good, Rumpel. You can't hear a word you're saying. No, I suppose you're right, Hilda. Again. Thanks for nothing. The face of the barrister-baiting police commander, Bob Durden, was to appear again in Froxbury Mansions. This time, it was on the front of the paper Hilda was reading at breakfast. And this time, she threw the commander at me with anger and contempt. Feet of clay, Rumpel. Hmm? That apparently sensible policeman, who was so articulate on the up to the minute show, turns out to have feet of clay. Hmm? Hmm. (laughs) Not only feet, it seems, up to the neck in the stuff. Senior police officer charged with conspiracy to murder... Substantial payment offered to contract killer. Local doctors seem to be involved. Commander Bob Durden, who recently announced a policy of zero tolerance towards beggars and street offenders, was today himself the subject of an arrest. Well, well, well. Wonders will never cease. Who will he have to defend him, we ask ourselves. For heaven's sake, Grumpo, try not to look so delighted. Hilda was right. I was not unpleased by this news. I relished the prospect of observing events unfold in Commander Durden's unexpected fall from grace, and I was cheerful because, as the small buds appear when spring follows winter, my practice was beginning to show signs of a return to eventual bloom. Also, the introduction to chambers of our new Director of Marketing and Administration, Ms. Lucy Gribble, was having a startling and sometimes rather amusing impact on us all. As Hilda was to discover... Never guess what I've just seen, Rumpel. Never in a million years. I dropped in to tell you that you'll have to make yourself supper tonight as I'm called to a meeting of my old girls' committee. And as I passed the clerk's room, I saw Claude Erskine Brown with a strange woman in his arms, in front of the clerks. When you say in the arms of, what were they doing exactly? I take it they weren't kissing each other. Not that, no. They were hugging. Oh, well, that's all right, then, if they were only hugging. What do you mean, that's all right, then? I said, am I disturbing something, and walked straight out of the clerk's room and came to see you, Rumpel. (laughs) I must say, I expected you to take this extraordinary conduct of Claude's rather more seriously. Exactly whom was Claude hugging? I couldn't see much of her. She seemed to have blonde hair, not entirely convincing, I thought. A black trouser suit, shiny boots, 
I think so. Now you mention it. And that would be our new director of marketing and administration. So that makes it perfectly all right, does it? Is part of her job description snogging other people's husbands? Not snogging, hugging. All right, then. Hugging. Is that her job? Is that what you're saying? Provided it's Thursday. Rumpole. Are you feeling quite well? Her name is Lucy. She spells it with an I. And does she do that to irritate people? That might well be part of it. And she had the idea that we should all hug each other at work on Thursdays. She said it would improve our corporate spirit and lead to greater harmony in the workplace. You mean you all hug each other? Yes. If you look on the notice board, you'll see that Sophie Sam Ballard has commended the idea to everyone at Number 4 Equity Court. He's very pro-Lucy since I told him she thought he had a mysterious sexual allure. She actually said that? In the presence of witnesses. Has the world gone mad? Only on Thursdays. That's when we're meant to hug each other. On Fridays, Lucy has decided that we dress down. What's that mean, exactly? It means that Ballard comes in wearing jeans and a red sweater with black diamonds on it. Oh, and some white gym shoes. You mean trainers? If you say so. Do you intend to dress down, Rumpel? Certainly not. As you well know, I couldn't afford it. Rumpel! Ah, Hilda! We haven't seen you here lately. I've just got some remarkable news to share with Rumpel. All right. I'll leave you boys to hug each other. Oh, dear. Is she upset about something? Oh, not upset. Perhaps more puzzled. Well, I'm sure she'll work it out of formidable intelligence. Now, listen, Rumpel. This will probably be the most famous case of my career. The story, you'll have to admit, is quite sensational. What have you landed now, Ballard? Another seven days before the rating tribunal? I have been offered, Rumpel, the leading brief for the defence in Regina versus Dern. What? It is, of course, tragic that a fine police officer should fall so low. He's briefed you to defend him. Rumpel, I realise I have taken on an almost superhuman task and a tremendous responsibility. But I've been able to do you a good turn... What sort of good turn, exactly? You see, the commander went to a local solicitor, Henry Crozier. We were at university together, Henry and I, and he knew that Durden wouldn't want any flashy sort of clever dick defence QC. The sort he's spoken out against so effectively on the television. You mean he picked you because you're not a clever dick? Dependable, Rumpel, and, I flatter myself, trusted by the courts. And I persuaded Henry Crozier to give you the junior brief. Naturally, in a case of this importance, I shall do most of it myself. If the chance arises, you might be able to call some formal, undisputed evidence. Oh, I should look forward to that. And, of course, you'll take a note of my cross-examination. You'll be capable of that, won't you? I think so. And don't you worry, Rumpel. I shan't be asking you to conduct the trial. We were assembled in Ballard's room for a conference. The commander, wearing a business suit, on bail and suspended from his duties on full pay, was looking smaller than in his full-dress appearance on the television screen. You know, Chivering used to be such a pleasant old town. Deep in the countryside, only just north of London. But now we have our share of the rising crime rate. Well, now the villains have moved out of the East End for a breath of country air. They own the wine bars and the garden centres and probably deal in hard drugs and protection rackets. You seem to know a great deal about my patch, Mr. Rumpel. There's no better cover for serious crime than your average garden centre. <clears throat> you must forgive Rumpel, Commander. He likes to digress. Now, let us get to the point. The suggestion is, Commander, that you offered money to a contract killer. 
A certain Len Luxford. Aha. Len the Silencer Luxford. Yes, yes, Rumpel. I'm sure you knew the man intimately, but we're not here to listen to your reminiscences, fascinating as they may be. Now, Commander, you agree that you did meet this man, Luxford? Well, yes. We had a whole network of police informers. Uh-huh. We paid good money for reliable information, and on the whole, we got it. Then I began to hear rumours. Some of my officers were getting too friendly with the real villains, warning them of searches and arrest, sometimes getting a share in the proceeds of the crime. Oh, dear me, you do surprise me. Some of your officers sound almost as bad as defence barristers. Rumpel, please. Yes, do carry on, Commander. I was making inquiries into my officer's conduct when this man, Luxford, asked to see me alone. In his statement to the police... Len Luxford says that at that meeting you offered him £5,000 cash to dispose of a certain Dr. Petrus Wakefield. Half down and half on completion of the task. I said nothing of the sort. Choice of weapons being left to Len the silence on himself. Absolutely not. <clears throat> Did you ever have the slightest intention of disposing of Dr. Wakefield? Of course not. Hadn't you better ask Commander Durden about the letter? Thank you, Rumpole, if you'll allow me to conduct this conference in my own way. Uh, Did you write a letter to the doctor's wife in which you said, and I quote, How happy we could both be, my darling, if that husband of yours could just disappear from the face of the earth? Dr. Wakefield stole that letter out of her handbag. The point is, did you write it? Well, you see, uh, to tell you the truth, Mr. Ballard... We were in love. You write silly things when you're in love, don't you? You wrote like that? To a married woman? You? A senior police officer? To a doctor's wife? I'm not particularly proud of it. Judy's a very beautiful woman. And we're crazy about each other. We just wanted to be together for always. When you wrote that you'd both be much happier if he vanished from the face of the earth, you weren't suggesting the doctor would die. You simply meant that he'd get out of her life and leave you to each other. Wasn't that it? Yes. Yes, of course, Mr. Rumpole. You're putting it absolutely correct. No, that's all right. It's just a defence barrister's way of putting it. Excuse me just a moment. Nothing new was emerging from Ballard's conference, so I excused myself, slipped out of the room, counted up to a hundred under my breath, and returned with what I hoped Soapy Sam Ballard, my so-called leader, might interpret as a message of love. A hundred. Oh, uh, Ballard. Huh? Uh, message from our head of marketing. Ah. Lucy wants a quick word with you. She's in her room. She says it's a matter of urgency. Urgency? urgency yes. Really? Oh, very good. <clears throat> he was like a fish, his mouth slightly open, tempted by a particularly colourful fly. He couldn't resist the prospect of a glimpse of the bright-booted Lucy, who, it seemed, had taken an unexpected fancy to him. Uh, excuse me, Commander, I won't be a minute. If you could uh, carry on, Rumpel. I could carry on. I gave some quick instructions to our client. Now then, Commander Durden, I want us to have a look at your bank statements. We must make sure that an inexplicable two and a half thousand didn't get drawn out in cash during the period in question. If they're clean... I can assure you... Sure they are. We'll tell the prosecution we'll disclose them as evidence, provided that they give us the good Dr. Wakefield's in return. Very well, Mr. Rumpel. But why? Well, never mind about the why for a moment. 
Now, you might help me a bit more now about Dr. Wakefield. I suppose he's pretty well known in the town. He's a very popular doctor on the pillar of the local amateur dramatic society. Has he practised medicine in Chivering for many years? A good many years. I think he started off in London, uh, mm. practising the East End, Bethnal Green. That's what he always told us. Mm. Apparently a pretty rough area. Then he came out to Chivering. To get away from the East End? I don't know. He always said he enjoyed working there. I'm sure he did. One other thing. He was a pillar of the Dramatic Society, you say. Hmm. What sort of parts did he play? Oh, always leads for Dr Wakefield. The chivering thespians are rather ambitious. They did a passable Othello recently. And the doctor took the lead? Hmm. You're not suggesting he blacked up. I thought that wasn't allowed nowadays. Oh, no, no. The, uh, the other lead part. Oh, of course. Honest Iago. Hmm. That's most interesting. A minute later, a flushed pallard returned to the room, and I moved politely out of his chair. He hadn't been able to find Lucy with an eye anywhere in chambers, a fact which came as no surprise to me at all. Mm, delicious steak and kidney. Mm. Mm, oh, I must tell you, Hilda, this morning... Your precious Commander Durden. He's not mine, Rumpole. No longer mine. Not since I discovered his feet of clay. I'm not sure about his feet, but the rest of him seems pretty lively. He's desperately in love with a local doctor's beautiful wife. Oh, is he? That comes as no surprise to me at all. As soon as I saw him on the television, I knew there was something extremely fishy about that man. Did you really, Hilda? Of course I did. So you are not possessed of a free and open nature that thinks men honest that but seem to be so. Not like a fellow. There was something about his eyes. I told you at the time, I spotted it at once. Did you indeed? I was glad to discover that when it came to it, Hilda could lie as brazenly as any of my clients. <laughs> weeks before the trial, I thought a good deal about this Dr. Petrus Wakefield, and whom he might have come to know in those early days as a doctor in the East End of London. I remembered old cases and gang rivalry in that part of London, in the days when I was making something of a name for myself as a defender at the criminal bar. These thoughts led me to remember Bill Knuckles Huckersley, a heavyweight part-time boxer, full-time bouncer, and general factotum of a minicab organisation in Bethnal Green. I had done him some service, getting his father off a charge of attempting to smuggle a hacksaw into Pendleville while Bill was detained there. Accordingly, I forsook Pomeroy's wine bar one evening after court and made instead for the pub in Bethnal Green Road, which had become known since a famous shooting had occurred there in its recent past as the Luger and Lime Bar. Knuckles arrived dead on time, a large, broad-shouldered man who seemed to move as lightly as an inflated balloon across to where I sat. Mr. Rumpole. Knuckles. Uh, this is an honour, sir. I told Dad you'd rung up for a meeting. He was over the moon about it. Yeah, let's see. How old is he now? Yeah, 89 now, still going. He, he sends his good wishes, of course. And send him mine. I will. I bought Knuckles a pint of lager Cheers, and the cheers. packet of curry-flavoured crisps he'd asked for. As he crunched his way through them, the conversation turned to Dr. Petrus Wakefield. Oh, uh, uh, Dr. Petrus. Mm. Yes, Petrus. Not a name you'd forget. 
It seemed to turn up in a number of cases I did in my earlier years. Oh, yeah, he treated friends of mine. Knuckles lifted a fistful of crisps to his mouth, and a sound emerged like an army marching through a field of dead bracken. They did get quite a few injuries in the line of business. What do you mean by that exactly? Knife wounds, bullet holes. Some of them I went around with used to attract those sort of uh, accidents, if you will. You needed a doctor who wasn't to get inquisitive. Know what I mean? Yeah. And that was Dr. Petrus Wakefield. Yeah. You got any further questions, Mr. Rumpel? Yeah. <laughs> Don't they say that in court? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. Uh, about Len Luxford. He used to come in here too, didn't he? Len, the old silencer. Yeah, he certainly did. He's long gone from these parts. I've got a window cleaning business somewhere outside London near Chivering. Do you see him occasionally? We keep in touch. Quite regular. And he was a patient of Dr. Petrus in the old days? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all were, Mr. Rampong. Anything else you can tell me about the doctor? Nothing much. Except that acting malarkey was always on about. He wanted to get the boys in the nick into acting out plays. I had it when I was in the scrubs. He'd visit the place and start drama groups. I used to steer clear of them. A lot of dodgy blokes dressing up like females. <laughs> Did he ever try to teach Len Luxford any acting techniques? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, not till recently, I reckon. Well, you mean since they both moved to Chivering? Oh, something like that, yeah. yeah. Last time I had a drink with Len, he told me a bit about it. What sort of acting are you talking about? Yeah, well, now, I can't tell you that, Mr. Rumpole. I honestly don't think I can remember... Might you remember if we called you as a witness down the Old Bailey? You try and get me as a witness down the Old Bailey, Mr. Rumpole, and you'll never live to see me again. Not in this world, you won't. This is one of those unhappy cases, members of the jury. This was Marston Dawlish, QC, a large, beefy man, much given to false smiles and unconvincing bonhomie. One of those very rare cases. Opening the case for the prosecution to an attentive jury. When a member of the police force, in this case a very senior member of the police force, seems to have lost all his respect for the law and set about to plot and plan an inexcusable and indeed a cruel crime. On the bench... We had drawn the short straw in the person of the aptly named Mr. Justice Graves, a pale, unsmiling figure with hollow cheeks and bony fingers. He sat with his eyes closed, as though to shut out the painful vision of a dishonest senior copper. As I say, it is happily rare indeed to see a high-ranking police officer occupying that particular seat in an old Bailey courtroom. Here, Marston Dawlish raised one of his ham-like hands and waved it in the general direction of the dock. A rotten apple. The words came in a solemn, doom-laden voice from the gravestone on the bench. Indeed, your lordship. Members of the jury, we used to say that of police officers who might be less than honest. We used to call them rotten apples who might infect the whole barrel if they weren't <clears throat> rooted out. Ballard, 
Aren't you going to point out that that was an appalling thing for the judge to say? Quiet, Rumpole. Get up on your hind legs and make a fuss about it. Let me remind you, Rumpole, I'm leading counsel in this case. I make the decision. Mr. Ballard, does your junior wish to say something? Uh, no, my lord, uh, my junior doesn't wish to say anything. If an objection has to be made, your lordship can rely on me to make it. I'm glad of that. Thought I saw Mr. Rumpole growing restive. I am restive, my lord. Your lordship seems to be inviting the jury to think of my client as a rotten apple, as your lordship so delicately phrased it, before we've heard a word of evidence against him. Rumpole, sit down! I wasn't referring to your client in particular, Mr. Rumpole. I was merely describing unsatisfactory police officers in general. My lord. There is only one police officer in the dock, and he is completely innocent until he's proved guilty. He could reasonably object to any reference to rotten apples before this case has even begun. Members of the jury, you've heard what Mr. Rumpole has to say to you, and you will no doubt give it what weight you think fit. <clears throat> yes, Mr. Marston Dawlish, perhaps you may continue with your opening speech... Now, Mr. Ballard's junior has finished addressing the court. An old Bailey conference room had been reserved for us at lunchtime so that we could discuss strategy and eat sandwiches. Ballard, after having done nothing very much all morning, was happily tucking into a prawn and mayo when he looked up and met the eye of an outraged Commander Turton. What the hell was that judge up to? Gerald Graves. Mm, bit of an off-putting manner, I agree. But he's sound. Very sound. Isn't he, Rumpel? Sound? It's the sound of a distant fog on a damp night. Whatever he sounds like, it seems he found me guilty in the first ten minutes. Oh, you mean you found the scales of justice tipped towards the prosecution? I thought you said it was always the other way round. I have to admit, I couldn't help admiring the way you stood up to that judge, Mr. Rumpel. That was standing up to the judge, was it? Not just another courtroom trick to get the jury on our side and give the scales of justice a crafty shove. I have to say, I don't think it was wise to attack the judge at this stage of the case, or indeed at all. From now on, I shall be personally responsible for what is said in court, Commander Durden. As your leading counsel, I shall do my best to get back on better terms with Gray. You mean he's going to get away with calling me a rotten apple? I mean to concentrate our fire on this man, Luxford. He's got a string of previous convictions. Uh, perhaps I should remind you, first of all, someone's got to cross-examine the good Dr. Petrus Wakefield. I shall be doing that, Rumpole, and I intend to do it very shortly. We don't want to be seen to be attacking the man whose wife, our client, most unfortunately... Rogered on a regular basis? Misconducted himself. Well, you have to go into the whole affair. It's provided the motive for the crime. The alleged victim is a deceived husband. The jury are going to have a good deal of sympathy for the doctor. If you ask him the questions I've suggested, they may not have that much sympathy. You did get my list, didn't you? All you have to do is to lob them out across a crowded courtroom. I have read your list of questions carefully, Rumpel, and quite frankly, I don't think there's anything in it that would be helpful to ask Dr. Wakefield. Well, it might be very helpful to the prosecution if you don't ask them. I shall simply say, my client deeply regrets his unfortunate conduct with your wife, and sit down. Exhausted, I suppose. Don't you want to get at the truth of this case? Truth? My dear Rumpel, I didn't know you were interested in the truth. All these questions, 
Seems nothing but a sort of smokescreen, irrelevant matter to confuse the jury. I told you about my meeting with Knuckles Huckersley in the Luger and Lime Bar. You did. And I regretted the fact that a member of our chambers would go to such lengths, or shall I say depths, to meet a potential witness. So you're not going to ask the doctor about his practice in the East End? I think the jury would find that quite counterproductive. It could look like an attack on his character. So you won't take that risk? Certainly not. Is that sandwich smoked salmon? Spam and chutney, I rather imagine. There was silence then. Ballard chewed the last sandwich gloomily. No doubt I had broken every rule and shown a lamentable lack of faith in my learned teacher, but I had to make the situation clear to our client, the copper who had shown his complete lack of faith in defending counsel. Well, Commander, you've got yourself a leading barrister who's going to keep the scales tipped in the right direction. Towards justice? No, towards a conviction. If it's the conviction of an innocent man, well, I suppose that's just bad luck and part of the system as you'd like it to work. Are you saying, Mr. Rumpel, that the questions you want asked could get me off? At least leave you in with a chance. Now, Mr. Ballard here doesn't want to ask them. I've told you, they'll only turn the judge against us. And why do you want to ask them, Mr. Rumpel? Oh, I'm just one of those legal hacks you disapprove of. I want you to walk out of court laughing. I know that makes me a very dubious sort of lawyer. The kind you really hate, don't you, Commander Dern? Mr. Ballard? Hmm? I want Mr. Rumpel's questions asked. I told you, I'm in charge of this case, and I don't intend to make any attack on a reputable doctor whose wife you apparently seduced. Then Rumpole is going to have to ask the questions for you. Under the circumstances, then, I must withdraw. My advice has not been taken, and I must go. I can't say I expect a happier result for you, Commander, but I wish you well. I suppose you're not coming with me, Rumpole? Well, no, I'm afraid not, Bernard. I felt for the man, but I couldn't leave with him. Commander Durden had put his whole life in the hands of the sort of old Bailey hack he had publicly claimed could never be trusted not to pull a fast one. Dr. Petrus Wakefield was the first witness, and he gave, I had to admit, an impressive performance. He was a tall, still slender man with greying sideboards, slightly hooded eyes, and a chin raised to show his handsome profile to the best possible advantage. When he took the oath... I swear by Almighty God that the evidence... He held I the Bible up high and projected in a way which must have delighted the, the elderly and hard of hearing in the audience attending the, the chivering amateurs. So help me God. He smiled at the jury, took care not to speak faster than the movements of the judge's pencil and asked for no special sympathy as a betrayed husband and potential murder victim. If he weren't a truthful witness, clearly he knew how to play the part. He'd been an undoubted hit with the jury by the time I rose on my hind legs and started my cross-examination. Dr. Wakefield, you're suggesting in this case that my client, Commander Durden, instigated a plan to kill you? Yes, I am. Well, but you're still here, aren't you? Alive and kicking. <laughs> Silence! Mr. Rumpo. For reasons which we need not go into here, your learned leader hasn't felt able to continue in this case. Your lordship is saying that he will be greatly missed. What I am saying is that I hope this defence will be conducted according to the high standard we have come to expect from Mr. Ballard. 
Do I make myself clear? Perfectly clear, my lord. I will do my best. Dr. Wakefield, were you bitterly angry when you discovered that your wife had been sleeping with Commander Durden? Mr. Rumpo, I'm sure the jury will assume that Dr. Wakefield had the normal feelings of a betrayed husband. I quite agree, my lord, but the evidence might be more valuable if it came from the witness and not from your lordship. <laughs> Dr. Wakefield, <laughs> did you consider divorce? I thought about it, but my wife Judy and I decided to try to keep the marriage together. For the sake of our children, an admirable decision, if I may say so. Now, you've produced as evidence the letter you found in your wife's handbag. By the way, do you make a practice of searching your wife's handbag? Certainly not. It was only after I'd become suspicious. I'd heard rumours. I see. So you found this letter in which the commander said they might be happier if you vanished from the face of the earth. Did you take that as a threat to kill you? When I heard about the plot, yes. When you heard about it from Len Luxford? Yes. But not at the time you found the letter. It occurred to me it might be a threat, but I didn't believe that Bob Durden would actually do anything. You didn't believe that? No. But I know he wished I was dead. And it made you angry? Very angry. So I suppose you went straight round to the commander's office or his house and confronted him with it? No, I didn't do that. You didn't do that? May I ask why you didn't confront my client with this outrageous letter? I didn't want to add to the scandal. You see, Judy and I were going to try and make a life together. That answer does you great credit, if I may say so, Dr. Wakefield. What may not do you quite so much credit, Doctor, is the revenge you decided to take on your wife's lover. This letter gave you the idea. The ingenious revenge you planned would cause Bob Durden and not you to suffer. Isn't that the truth of the matter? Are you suggesting, Mr. Rumpole, that we've all got this case the wrong way round? And that it was <coughs> Dr. Wakefield who was planning to murder your client? Not murder him, my lord. However angry the doctor was, however deep his sense of humiliation, he stopped short of murder. No. What he planned for Commander Durden was a fate almost worse than death for a senior police officer. He planned to put him exactly where he is now, in the old Bailey dock, faced with the most serious charge and with the prospect of a long term of confinement in prison. The jury looked startled at a new and extraordinary idea. Everyone seemed to hold their breath, and I felt as though I had just dumped my money on an outside chance, and the roulette wheel had started to spin. I really haven't the least idea what you mean. Mr. Rumpo, I presume you're going to explain that extraordinary suggestion. Your Lordship's presumption is absolutely correct. I would invite your Lordship to listen carefully while I put my case to the witness. Dr. Wakefield, you say that you learnt of the alleged plot to kill you when this man Luxford called to warn you. We haven't yet heard from Mr. Luxford, but that is your story. It's the truth. Luxford warned you because he was grateful for the way you treated his mother in your capacity as a medical man. That is so. But you know, then, Luxford, the silencer, as he was affectionately known by the regulars in the Luger and Lime Bar in Bethnal Green, <laughs> long before that, hadn't you? Yes. Because you practiced as a doctor in that part of London. 
I did, yes. And got to know quite a number of characters who lived on the windy side of the law. It was my job to treat them medically. I didn't inquire into the way they lived their lives. Of course not, Doctor. But didn't some of your customers turn up having been stabbed or with gunshot wounds, dubiously acquired? They did, yes. So you treated them? Yes, just as you, Mr. Rumpo, no doubt represented some of them in this court. It was Ooh. a palpable hit. <laughs> the jury smiled. The gravestone looked as though it was the first first day of spring, and I had to beware of any temptation to underestimate the intelligence of Dr. Wakefield. Exactly so. Mm. And, Dr. Wakefield, like me, you got to know some of them quite well. You got to know Luxford very well indeed in those old days, didn't you? He was a patient of mine. You treated his wounds and kept quiet about them. Probably. Probably. So... Would it be right to say that you and the silencer Luxford went back a long way and he owed you a debt of gratitude? Exactly, which is why he told me about your client's plan to kill you. Yes, I'm just coming to that. When you're not practicing medicine or patching up old gangsters, you will spend a great deal of time acting, don't you? It's my great passion. Acting can release us from ourselves, call on us to create a new character. Which is why you encouraged acting in prisons. Well, exactly, Mr. Rumpole. I'm glad you understand that, at least. I think you encouraged Len Luxford to act. In the old days, when I did some work with prisoners, yes. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, quite recently, when you suggested he went in for a chat with Commander Durden about police informers and came out acting the part of a contract killer. I really have no idea what you're suggesting. <clears throat> Neither have I. Perhaps you'd be good enough to explain yourself, Mr. Rumpole. Certainly, my lord. As I said, it was finding the letter that gave you the idea. You were going to get your revenge not by killing Commander Durden. Nothing as brutally simple as that, but by getting him convicted of a conspiracy to murder you. By finishing his career, turning him into a criminal, landing him the rotten apple in the barrel of decent coppers, in prison for a very long time indeed. That is absolute nonsense. All you needed was an actor for your small cast play. So you got Len, the silencer Luxford, who owed you a number of favours, to act for you. All he had to do was to lie about what Commander Durden had said to him when he arranged a meeting, and you thought that false statement and the letter to your wife would be enough. It's an interesting idea, Mr. Rumpel, but of course it's completely untrue. You're an excellent actor, aren't you, Doctor? Didn't you have a great success in the Shakespeare play you did recently with the local amateur dramatic society? Well, I think we all did fairly well. What's that got to do with it? Didn't you play Iago? A man who ruins his commander by producing false evidence. Mr. Rumpo, have you no other evidence for the very serious suggestions you're making to this witness, except for this analogy to a man called, what's his name? Iago, my lord. Iago. Yes, yes, my lord. <laughs> I'd like the jury to have a couple of documents. Our solicitor, Mr. Crozier, had done his work well. Having surrendered Commander Durden's bank statements to the young man from the Crown Prosecution Service, he seemed to take it for granted that we should get Dr. Wakefield's in return. Now the judge and the jury had their copies, and I introduced the subject. Let me just remind you, Luxford saw Commander Durden on March the 15th. On March the 21st, you went to Detective Inspector Minot with your complaint that my client had asked Luxford to kill you for a payment of £5,000. 
two and a half thousand down, and the balance when the deed was done. Well, that's the truth. It's what I told the inspector. You're sure it's the truth? I am on my oath. So you are. Perhaps we could all look at your bank statement now. Did you, as it states, draw out £2,500 in cash on March the 21st? It's quite a large sum, wasn't it? May I ask what it was for? Uh, I think I had to pay... Yes, I seem to remember things had been done to the house. Mm, uh, it wasn't anything to do with the house, was it? <laughs> I suggest you were paying Len Luxford off in cash. Not for doing a murder, but for pretending to be part of a conspiracy to murder. When does he get the rest of the money? On the day Commander Durden is convicted? Of course not. Is that your answer? My lord, may I remind you and the jury, there are no large amounts of cash of the order of two and a half thousand pounds to be seen coming out of Commander Durden's account during the same relevant period. But look, if you will, at Dr. Wakefield's account. What was Iago's advice to us all? Put money in thy purse. Did not Iago also say, and what's he then that says I play the villain? <coughs> Mr. Rumpo, have you more questions for this witness? Not for the moment, my lord. My lord, <clears throat> my learned friend has taken such unconscionable time with this witness. I suggest I call Mr. Luxford tomorrow morning. Very well, Mr. Barston Dawlish. Be upstanding. <coughs> but they didn't call the silencer next morning or any other morning. I don't know whether it was the news of my cross-examination in the evening paper or a message of warning from Knuckles, but in a fit of terminal stage fright, Len failed to enter the court. A visit by the police to the house where he carried on his window-cleaning business only revealed a distraught wife who had no idea where Len had got to. I suppose he had enough experience of the law to understand that a charge of conspiracy to murder brought against the commander might turn into a charge against Dr. Wakefield and Len Luxford of attempting to pervert the course of justice. And so the silencer went, with his cash in hand, perhaps back to his old friends and his accustomed haunts, his one unsuccessful stab at the acting profession over. When Marston Dawlish announced that without his vital witness the prosecution couldn't continue, Mr Justice Graves gave a heavy sigh and advised the twelve honest citizens, Members of the jury, you have heard a lot of questions put by Mr Rumpole about the man whom he likes to refer to as Iago and other suggestions which may or may not have seemed to you to be relevant to this case. The simple fact of the matter is that the vital prosecution witness has gone missing, and Mr. Marston Dawlish has asked me to direct you to return a verdict of not guilty. It's an unfortunate situation, but there it is. So will your foreman please stand? I suppose I should thank you. I suppose you should. Thank me, the shifty old hack, and a couple of hard cases like Knuckles Huckersley and Len Luxford. We doubtful characters saved your skin, Commander, and managed to tip the scales of justice in favour of the defence. I shall go on protesting about that, of course. I thought you might. 
Not that I have any criticism of what you did in my case. I'm sure you acted perfectly properly. You believed in my innocence. Nope. You didn't believe in my innocence. My belief is suspended. It's been left hanging up in the robing room for years. It's not my job to find you innocent or guilty. That's up to the jury. All I can do is to put your case as well as you would if you had anything approaching my ability. I don't think I'd ever have thought up your attack on the doctor. No, I don't believe you would. So I'm grateful to you. Thank you. But you say you're not convinced of my innocence. Don't worry. You can forget about that now. You can go back to work. That's true. I've been suspended for far too long. It's been an interesting experience. We live in different worlds, Mr. Rumpole, you and I. So we do. You believe everyone who turns up in court is guilty. I suspect some of them may be innocent. You suspect, you say. But you never know, do you? Goodbye, Mr. Rumpole. And so he went. I fully expect to see him again in his impressive uniform, complaining from the corner of our living room about the scales of justice being constantly tipped in favour of the defence. Sometime later, I was making for the old bailey and some trivial matter, a brothel in Ricelip, when I heard the sound of gym shoes pounding the pavement beside me. Who should draw up alongside but Soapy Sam Ballard in jogging attire? Ah, it's Friday, Rumpole. You're not dressed down. Uh, no, I'm dressed up for a suburban brothel. So wonderful the new regime Lucy has introduced in chambers, don't you think, Rumpole? Mrs. Justice Erskine Brown called in yesterday and I was able to greet her appropriately. Ah, yesterday was Thursday. Yes, it was. So did you hug her? I embraced her, Rumpole. You see, Lucy's ideas have brought the bar and the judiciary closer together. So it seems. Oh, by the way, Rumpole, you had a bit of luck in Regina versus Durden. I gather the vital prosecution witness went missing. That's right. Are you calling that luck? Lucky for you, Rumpole. From what I read of your cross-examination, you were clearly irritating the judge. I'm afraid I was. I do have a talent for irritating judges. Pity that. Otherwise, you are, in many ways, quite able. Thank you, Ballard. Oh, no, no, no. No, I should thank you for getting me out of that unpleasant case. Crime is such a sordid business, isn't it? I feel that the civil courts are somehow cleaner. You're wrong, Ballard. The civil courts are all about money, a dull subject. Criminal law is about life, love, human frailty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh, I'm so grateful to you for sitting in for me. You're entirely welcome. But will you promise me something? What's that? Please don't hug me, Ballard. Nothing much on the telly tonight, Rumpo. Oh, dear. Not even Commander Durden to lecture us about the scales of justice. I told you, Rumpo. I saw right away that there was something fishy about that client of yours. He was acquitted. You know perfectly well, Rumpo, that doesn't mean a thing. Next time he turns up on the telly, I shall switch over to the other channel. Immediately. <laughs> and I thought, with some pride, you'd search for a long time down the old bailey before you found a judge as remorseless and tough as she who must be obeyed. In Rumpole and the Scales of Justice by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. 
his wife Hilda Prunella Scales, and Samuel Ballard, Michael Cochrane. Commander Bob Durden, Geoffrey Whitehead, Knuckles Huckersley, Ewan Bailey, Justice Graves, Ian Masters, Marston Dawlish, David Shaw Parker, and Dr. Petrus Wakefield, John Rowe. Rumpole and the Scales of Justice was directed by Marilyn Imbrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.